Well, to orient you to the text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I want, to, I want you to consider these questions. You don't have to answer out loud. In fact, don't answer out loud. Just consider them in your head just to get you thinking about this topic that Paul's addressing because I don't think we normally orient to this topic very well. So just trying to get the juices flowing, if you will. Are you being tempted towards idolatry? When was the last time you battled temptation towards idolatry? To help with that, how would you define idolatry? Is it dangerous? And how would you battle that temptation if it did come to you? The Corinthian church has written to ask the Apostle Paul about the topic of idolatry. And Paul is answering their question, beginning all the way back in chapter 8, verse 1, and this, quest, this answer lasts all the way through chapter 10 to verse 1 of chapter 11. So Paul's, Paul's, Paul's answer is still unfolding before us. And it's important. It's an important question. I feel like I have to convince you of this. Because I don't think we think of idolatry that seriously. It's an important question because apparently there is something having to do with idolatry that we can do which would damage a brother or sister's soul for eternity. Which should cause us to ask the question, is there a modern version of soul-threatening idolatry that we need to be aware of? So a brief recap, just to place us in the text, <laughs> between chapters 8, 9, and 10, to place us where we are. In chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says, uh, is he's talking about an eating meat that has been ceremonially offered to idols. And he cautions the so-called stronger brothers, saying, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. That's our alarm. That's serious. And that's why we must limit the use of our freedoms in Christ for the spiritual well-being of others. That's what Paul goes on to say. And so here's what you need to do, because their salvation is at stake. Then in chapter 9, verse 19, Paul uses himself as an example, saying, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So, see, Paul says, I'm limiting my freedoms to win people to Jesus Christ. He limits others of his freedoms to win Gentiles to Christ, some to win, to, to win Jews to Christ, and he does this so that the gospel runs free, right? The gospel is unhindered by him or his behaviors. Now, this will be obvious to us next week when we look at the second half of chapter 10. We're only going to look at the first half this morning. But in chapter 10, verse 31, Paul tells us, So whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but seeking the advantage of many that they may be saved. You see, it's all about the gospel. This entire answer about idols is about the gospel. Paul's, Paul's big idea is clear. It's necessary for me to limit my rights in love so that, two things, one, my weaker brothers and sisters in the church will not be tempted to fall away from the living God and go back to worshiping idols. And two, 
that unbelievers outside of the church would not be so put off by me exercising my liberties that they're not willing to listen to the gospel that I have to share with them. Now, in the first half of chapter 10, that's our text this morning, there's a third issue for Paul to address. And it is the effect of idolatry on us. Not just how it may affect others around us in the church and out of the church, but its effect on us. We're placing ourselves in the position of the strong brothers who are being addressed. Remember the last verse of chapter 9, which I said last week sets up chapter 10? It's this, it's verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest I myself should be disqualified. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. And so this is true for the so-called strong in the church in Corinth. It is true for the Apostle Paul, and it's true for each one of us. Our failure to limit our freedoms, to strategically curtail the use of our Christian liberties, has the very real potential not only to destroy others, but to destroy ourselves. That imperishable wreath that Paul's running for represents heaven. To be disqualified is to fail, to persevere in the faith, to apostatize, to stray, and ultimately abandon God and Christ and the salvation that they bring. So idolatry is dangerous. See, I think we have a habit when we hear this word idolatry. And we, we picture a little, little stone figurine or a little wooden figurine you know, off in a corner somewhere as something, oh, that's just, oh, that's ancient stuff that you read about in the Old Testament. Or that's something that happens in foreign countries that has nothing to do with me. And we dismiss it. We dismiss the notion of idolatry. And we do that, we're dismissing Scripture. Which is always a tragic mistake. Because this warning is written for us. So take up your, your Bible and your sermon outline and you'll see this theme. Take heed to God's warnings and flee idolatry, lest you disqualify yourself and experience the Lord's judgment, which is eternity in hell. Let me go ahead and read our passage this morning. I'll begin in verse 1, read through verse 22 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And when 23,000 fell in a single day, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands 
Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak this as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of God for us this morning. In the Exodus, all the children of God were delivered out of Egypt. All God's people redeemed from their bondage to Pharaoh. And Paul uses the word all in those early verses five times in four verses. They were all receiving the benefits of God. All were under the cloud. That is, God was present with them, remember, in the form of a pillar of cloud by day, leading them, guiding them, protecting them. All passed through the Red Sea that swallowed up their enemy. All were baptized, that is, they identified as followers of God's anointed leader, who was Moses. All partook of the same spiritual food, the miraculous manna, which points to Christ, the bread of life, the miraculous water, which points to the Holy Spirit. And then Paul applies this typology. He says, the rock from which the water that kept them alive sprang forth from was Christ. Jesus was the agent of their rescue from bondage in Egypt. Jesus did that. He was spiritually present such that when they drank from the rock, they drank from Christ. Hallelujah. That's amazing. That's wonderful. The Exodus is the paradigmatic example of salvation that we find in the Old Testament. And Paul is establishing the fact that they all shared in the blessings of this deliverance wrought by Christ from Egypt. And this isn't just a history lesson. There's a purpose here. Their deliverance is a picture of our spiritual deliverance in the new covenant. All who enter into the new covenant by faith in the gospel are delivered from death. They're redeemed from sin. They're identified with Christ. They partake of his spiritual body and blood in the Lord's Supper. That's what's being referenced here. All in the new covenant, by faith in the gospel, share in the blessings of salvation in Christ. We share those spiritual privileges. And back to, our, back to our fathers now in Exodus. They also had privileges, and all of them shared in those privileges. Nevertheless, most of them displeased God and were overthrown. They were judged. They were condemned in the wilderness. All of them 
shared in the same blessings, most of them perished. How many is most? Well, how many escaped Egypt and entered into the promised land? Two. Joshua and Caleb. Now, there were others who were saved. Moses, Aaron, Miriam. There were others along the way. But if most means all but two, this is pretty serious. Jude writes in Jude verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. How could they all share in the same experience and not believe? How did they come to be disqualified to enter the promised land? Well, look at, look at verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. That's how. Theirs is a cautionary tale for us. A warning that it is possible for all to share in the spiritual blessings of Christ and yet for some to fall away because they practice idolatry, which Paul defines as desiring evil. And Paul drives this home with four horrific examples. He's not done yet. He really wants, us to, con he really wants to convince the Corinthians and convince us that this is serious. And he gives these four horrific examples. In verse 7, in verse 7, uh, this is the, the golden calf episode in Exodus chapter 32. Turn with me to, to Exodus chapter 32. And I'll just read verses 4 to 6. And he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow we will, well, shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They desired a different God. Do you see that evil desire? They desired a different God. They manufactured an idol. They ate a feast to celebrate it. And then they conducted an orgy. That's what it means to rise up to play. You must not be idolaters as Israel was, Paul says. Verse 8 is the result of the prophet Balaam's advice to King Balak in Numbers chapter 25. Flip over to Numbers chapter 25. I'll just read the first three verses. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked itself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Again, they were desiring another god. They worshipped Baal, and, and they ate a feast, and then they indulged in sexual immorality. You see a pattern here, don't you? And 23,000 were killed in one day as God's judgment. Verse 9 is the fiery serpent episode in Numbers chapter 21. Flip back just a couple of pages to Numbers chapter 21. I'll begin at verse 6. From Mount Hor they set out by way 
to the Red Sea. This is, this is Egypt, or this is Israel, uh, traveling through the wilderness to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that the people of Israel died. They liked Egypt better. They demanded the food that they wanted. I desire a certain food. God, you must provide it. They demanded that Egypt was better than the wilderness. By the way, they're in the wilderness in the first place because of their own sin back in Numbers chapter 14. And and this incident is described in Psalm 78 in verse 18. And it says, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They loathed what God gave them. God gave them miraculous manna and they loathed it. And they demanded different leadership. But you have to see that in rejecting Moses, they were, they were contesting Christ. Do you see that? Moses is, is God's appointed leader for them to bring them out. And then so in rejecting him, they're rejecting Christ. So God sent fiery serpents among them to carry out his judgment against them. We must not be idolaters who put Christ to the test, Paul says. And then verse 10 is a reference to Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, a number of the, of the Israelites rose up to overthrow Moses' leadership, demanding to elect their own leaders. So Moses said, well, let's, let's sit down and talk about it. I'll listen to your grievances. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't come to the bargaining table. Again, in rejecting God's appointed leader, they were rejecting Christ. And so in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 32, we read that, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, and all the people who belonged to Korah, and all their goods, everything, into the earth. And it closed up over them. After seeing that, after seeing that, the rest of them complained about how Korah was treated. And so we have round two. God sends the destroyer, which is a plague. And before Moses could intercede on behalf of the people, 14,700 of them died. God laid them low because of the evil desires in their heart, which is the definition of idolatry. And this wasn't limited to the Exodus generation. Turn turn to this account in uh, 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 21. I'll begin reading at verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, this, this, uh, this is the son of Hezekiah, the good king, because Manasseh, king of Judah, had committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did, and they were evil people who went before him, and has made Judah also to sin, he led them into idolatry with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria. So he's going to judge Jerusalem by the evil of Samaria, which is great, and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. He's going to measure them by Ahab, who's the evilest king that there was. He's going to punish them according to his standard. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish wiping it and turning it upside down. 
And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight. And have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt and even to this day. The entire history of the nation of Israel was characterized by idolatry and evil desires that provoke God's judgment. And Paul tells us that their example is a warning to us. We're supposed to be paying attention to these verses. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Well, you may read that and say, oh, oh, so it's a warning for the Corinthians. Yes. And to all those on whom the, ages, the end of the ages has come. Well, who's that? That's us. We are in the end of the ages. We know that because we are in the new covenant. The old covenant people were largely unregenerate. The pages of the Old Testament are not filled with believers, but unbelievers. Because they were under the old covenant. What did they need? They needed a new covenant. New covenant people, by definition, are regenerate. They all have new circumcised hearts. All their iniquity has been forgiven. They all know God, and God knows all of them. That's what it means to be in the new covenant. Because we've been taught that, we know that God is sovereign. Because we know that once God saves someone, they can't be made unsaved. Because when we hear this and we come to a warning passage in Scripture, because of those things, we kind of try to reason it away. Oh, this doesn't really apply to me. I I, I don't don't think this matters to me. I don't have to pay attention to this stuff. And yet Paul says, this is written for you. Paul knows that that not all who attend church are New Covenant people. That's why he issues this sober warning in verse 12. Therefore, the weight of all of this is to fall on that therefore. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. It is a real possibility that someone can profess Christ and yet be disqualified, not go to heaven. He's describing people who have tasted the good things of God, who have experienced the blessings of God, maybe who have grown up in the church all their lives, and then, and then they, they presume upon those blessings and those experience, and they presume that they're saved. Look at the Corinthians. They're so arrogant. Aren't you loving our study in the Corinthians? They are so arrogant. They are so self-serving. But they belong to a church that's so gifted and so knowledgeable that they presume they can do anything they want without any spiritual consequence. It's kind of easy believism. As long as I say I believe, I guess I'm saved. Remember in chapter 1 how they boasted in their wisdom, power, 
and social standing rather than boasting in Christ? Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall to disqualification because of idolatry. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is serious as a heart attack. And he's warning us. Do not presume upon Christ like these arrogant Corinthians are. Don't crave evil. Don't bow to idols. Don't commit sexual immorality. Don't put Christ to the test. It's a real warning. And it's followed by real assurance. Immediately. This is how we take warning passages when we come to them in Scripture. We're meant to balance them with the assurance passages. We don't come to a warning passage and say, it's a prophecy about my salvation. That's not how we address a warning passage. It's a warning. There are also assurances for believers. And so look at the very next words that Paul writes in verse 13. Got to get back to 1 Corinthians here. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul says, sin is common to every person. The temptation to evil desires is common to every person. The Exodus generation, the church in Corinth, us today. That's why the warning is a grace of God. And there is real assurance for real help. The God who saved you is faithful. He knows what you can bear, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he provides a way out. He does not eliminate temptation from your life, but he enables you to endure it, to say no, to avoid disqualification. We have a tendency to try to I, th I think sometimes we see this verse, God provides a way out. We have a tendency to try to apply this to every, every single daily temptation we have, right? Like you're walking down the street and, and you, meet a, you meet a temptation and you start looking around. Where's the door? Where's the window? Uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a very difficult way to address sin in your life. But, but that's not really what Paul's addressing. He's addressing apostasy. Falling away from God. Abandoning Christ. Paul is pointing to your final salvation. You will endure temptation all the way to the end such that you will not be disqualified so that you will not fall under God's judgment and go to hell. That's what he's saying. You will endure. You will persevere. This is how a warning works. I heard this illustration. I found it helpful. I think you might as well. So God is like a dad of a four-year-old kid. And the dad is calling the four-year-old back from the road when he sees a car coming. And by listening to his dad's voice, the four-year-old is kept safe. 
That's how it is for us. When we listen to the Father's voice and heed Him, He keeps us safe. That's how this warning passage works. If anyone does not listen, does not heed, eventually he will fall away, revealing that he never was truly saved in the first place. Because the mark of true salvation is not primarily your profession of faith. The mark of true Christianity is primarily your life of obedience to the Word of God. Warnings are one of the ways that God keeps us to the end. They're one of the tools in his toolbox to keep his kids safe. We need to respond to those warnings by saying, Oh God, I want to heed your warning. I want to heed your warning. I want to find you faithful all the way to the end. That's how we should respond. Not with faint-heartedness, but with confidence in our God who's trying to help us. So pick up in verse 14. Let me read this again for us. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that. What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Flee from idolatry. Paul's yelling this. Flee from idolatry. The warning is now a command. Isn't this the most obvious, sensible, spiritual thing you could possibly do? I mean, doesn't this just make sense? It makes total sense. Given your heart's desire for evil things, be honest... This is so practical. Flee from idolatry. Run away. Now, Paul is addressing two specific questions from the Corinthian church. I think I would break them down into these two questions. The first is about eating meat offered to idols, and the second is about actually attending those ceremonies where meat's offered to idols. And his answer is building. We've talked about this. Remember, remember back in chapter 8, he didn't just say yes or no. If, if Paul had just said yes or no, you know, we, we could have had... Two verses about uh, idolatry, and we'd be in chapter 11 already. But he didn't do that. There's, there's more nuance. There's other things that he wants to teach. His, his answer's building. He didn't just say yes or no because he's using the opportunity to teach the church about loving the brethren. He's using the opportunity to, to teach them about sacrificing their Christian liberties to be a more effective gospel servants to all. And now he's finally come around to getting back to that question. And he's going to compare and contrast the Lord's Supper with an idol's supper. You can see that pretty plainly, can't you? Notice that the Lord's Supper is, is communal. It's not individual. 
the cup of blessing that we bless. We who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. Remember how Paul said that he became all things to all people that he might share with them in the gospel. The Lord's Supper demonstrates that spiritual reality, that we are together, united in Christ, participating in his body and blood, the gospel. When we drink the cup, together we participate in the blood of Christ. When we eat the bread, together we participate in the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is a ceremony in which together we share in Christ's death. And and it's a mysterious thing. There's something more going on behind the eating and the drinking. Because when Christ died, I died. When Christ died, you died. We're united to Christ in his death. The death in which we die to sin. And Christ binds us together in his death. At the table, we share in Christ. He is the object of our worship. The old covenant sacrifices pointed to this. See, he thinks back to the people in Israel that he was talking about. By analogy, Israel was participating in the blessings of being God's people when they ate meat sacrificed to him at the altar. They were sharing in God, the object of their worship. In the same way, when pagans eat meat that they have sacrificed to an idol, the object of their worship is this false God. But Paul says, wait, there's something else going on behind the scenes too. When idols and false gods are nothing, which they are, Paul says, Paul, Paul admits what he said back in chapter 8, they're nothing. While they're nothing, there are demons behind those idols. And they are real. So the pagan supper table is not nothing in their idolatry. Their offering is being sacrificed to demons. Remember in chapter 8 when the so-called strong said that they had knowledge. We have knowledge that idols are nothing. And Paul cautioned them. He said, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. What they did not know that they ought to know is that behind those idols are demons. And demons are real. What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons, Paul says. See, you cannot separate the meat offered from the object of the worship, which is a demon. You cannot separate eating the meat offered to idols from participating with the demons. You can't see them, but they are there, and you are participating with them. Just as you cannot see, or you cannot separate eating of the Lord's Supper from participating with Christ. We know He's there. We know we're participating in Him spiritually. The Corinthians think they're free to go to temples and eat meat sacrificed to idol. And Paul says, no. You are participating with demons. And I do not want you to participate with demons. (laughs) That is not fleeing idolatry. That is participating in idolatry. 
And you can't do both. You can't separate the act from the object. And you cannot participate in Christ and participate in demons. You can't. They're they're mutually exclusive. Usually, when the Old Testament speaks about idols, we usually get a message something like this. It tells us that we become like the gods that we fashion. Out of wood, out of stone, with our own hands. We become blind because they can't see. We become like them, they're deaf. We're deaf. We're powerless because they're powerless. But there are two places in the Old Testament that refer to idols and connect them to demons. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now this is, this is Moses' song at the end of his life, and he's recounting what happened in the wilderness, and we get it all from God's perspective. I'm going to read quickly because I'm going to read from, uh, I'm going to begin at verse 10 and read down to verse 22, just so you're prepared. He, that's God, found him, that's Israel, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride in the high places of the land, and he ate the products of the field, and he suckled him with the honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. God found them, and he cared for them like a father. He provided for them. They shared in all of the blessings that God provided. Verse 15, but Jeshurun, that is Israel, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God and made him, uh, who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They They took advantage. They presumed upon God. They forsook God. They scoffed at Jesus Christ, right? The rock, capital R. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. That's their idolatry. With abominations that provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that they had come recently. Whom from your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. You see that their idolatry is tied to demons that have led them astray from God and from Christ. And so, verse 19, the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters, and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. He's talking about the Gentiles. I'm going to make my people, the Jews, jealous by the Gentiles. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. He's talking about the Gentile nations. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains." You cannot worship God and demons for two reasons. One, your idolatry will draw you away. Those demons will draw you and your evil desires away from God to worship only demons. And two, God won't allow it. 
You must love God completely. You cannot love God and love demons just a little. And you cannot partake of demons without disqualification. We see this, here's the second place in the Old Testament. We see this in, uh, in Psalm 106. Turn to Psalm 106, vine verse 34. The psalmist is now recounting this. Uh, it's, in, it's Israel in the promised land. So Israel enters the promised land, verse 34 of Psalm 106. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. There's the connection. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore with their deeds. Does that sound maybe a little bit like the Corinthians? They mix with their pagan culture. They try to do spiritual things by using culture's ways and means. They brought demonic influence in through their cultural accommodation. And what will be the effect on their children? They are, in effect, sacrificing them to culture, to idolatry. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? The God who loves us is jealous for our love. Jealous is a word that falls into the love word group. God, God demands our perfect love, all of our love. And he's jealous for it. He desires it. We're to love him, but our unfaithfulness to him is to prostitute ourselves to demons. That is participating in idolatry, not fleeing from it. And in so doing, we will generate God's wrath as it did in Israel's day. So Paul says, you're in danger of disqualifying yourself. And you're in danger of falling away. Take heed. Flee from idolatry. That's what he says. To us. The people who don't think they have any problem with idols. So how do we take heed? Paul, tell us what to do. How, how do we go about taking heed? If we're not tempted to attend pagan worship services in pagan temples... And if you are, say no. But if you're not, how, how do we take heed of Paul's warning? Well, first, read the warning label. That's what we've been doing. Idolatry is not limited to the action of bowing to silly statue made of wood or stone. This is Scripture. This is here for us. We're meant to do it. So listen to Paul's definition again of idolatry back in verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. You see, idolaters are those who desire evil in their hearts. Idolaters are those who desire evil in their hearts. Now, does that make idolatry suddenly relevant to you? Does that make Paul's warning suddenly applicable to you? Let me help you. The answer is yes. 
This is written for our instruction, brothers and sisters. Because we desire evil things in our hearts every day. If you're like me. They have the potential to draw our heart's love away from God. So we need to endure the temptation, and we can only do that by fleeing from our own evil desires. When I say idolatry, don't think small stone statue. Think the evil desires in my heart. We have to do what the warning says then. What are some of the instances of idolatry in Scripture to help us flee idolatry? There are many. Let me read just one from Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. There Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Covetousness is not an action. Covetousness is a desire in your heart. And that's idolatry. So fleeing idolatry begins in the heart, at the level of your desires. So fleeing idolatry means fleeing from anything that God has forbidden. That should be obvious. It also means rejecting anything or anyone to whom you have attached your happiness or your security or your meaning, that is value, or your purpose or your identity that is not Jesus Christ. You need to reject anything or anyone to whom you've attached your happiness, your security, your meaning, your purpose, your identity that is not Jesus Christ. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So we need to get serious, brothers and sisters, about the desires of our hearts. We can't be satisfied with a lack of idle practice in bowing down and eating meats, of actions. We need to get serious about the desires of our hearts. We need to get serious about battling lust when it first tempts our hearts. Not after we've acted on it. We need to get serious about battling anger as it forms in our hearts. Not after we've said the words that we can't take back. And we can. And we can. Every temptation you have experienced, all of us have experienced. If you share in the spiritual death of Christ, your Heavenly Father will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Such that you're disqualified. That should be encouraging. It should be encouraging to you if you're an unbeliever here today. If you're, if you're here this morning, let me say a word to you who are outside of Christ. You are, by definition, an idolater. Your loyalty is not to Christ, but to yourself. Because of that orientation, all of your desires are considered evil desires in God's sight. 
You've provoked his just wrath against you. And you are not stronger than he. Even so, heed this warning today. If you would bow down, not at an idol, but if you would bow down at the feet of Jesus Christ and give yourself to him, if you would turn from your selfish, evil desires and follow him in gentle service to others and in worship to God, then you too may become a participant in the body of Christ and of salvation that is eternal. I know this sounds like a harsh warning, but it's for your good. You are in real and present danger. Turn to Christ and be saved. The last note I want to make, finally, is to participate in the gospel of Christ. By God's grace, let us all be participants in Christ's gospel, as Paul encourages us to be. He, he serves, he lets go of all of his rights, that he might participate in the gospel with them. That is the believers. See, we're, we're not saved by our profession. We're not even saved by our obedience. Those would be works. We're saved by Jesus. He lived the perfect life of purity. He heeded all the words of God on our behalf. He sacrificed his body on the cross and wrote his new covenant of salvation in his shed blood. Who his love will not remember. Who could cease to give him praise. He will never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Take heed and stand in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your love for us is clear in that you're a good dad who's willing to warn us about the very evil desires of our own hearts. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be working with us by the power of your Spirit and the truth of your Word to cleanse our hearts of evil. God, help us to use the Spirit and the Word to endure temptation when it comes, to say no, and to endure all the way to the end, that we would not be disqualified, but that as your faithful gospel, servants, we might one day hear from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, well done. This is our prayer in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.